airways Here is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY. How are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six. 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to talk to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest started his radio journey back in 1960, had a top-rating Capital City Breakfast program, but really made his mark as Mr. Newcastle. Oh, and he was also responsible for putting to music that traditional human mating call... Nice legs, shame about your face! He is, of course, David Jones. We, we're showing you the things we're gonna do for you. Hey, David Jones, welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul, very much for having me. I'm very honoured, trust me. Now, these days, David, we of course find you in Newcastle. However, you did originally grow up in Melbourne back in the 50s. What are some of those early childhood memories that stand out for you? Probably the, the childhood memories that most stand out with me was, was my, my love and my early passion for radio, believe it or not. When, when I was a kid of uh, six, seven or so, I, I, I used to hold sort of um, uh, proxy broadcasts of radio in my backyard. I, I used to go looking for old radio sets. Uh, I'd, I'd ride my bike up to Bentley. I was living in Moorabbin at the time. I'd ride my bike to Bentley. There was a, a kind of a junk shop there. And I, I used to pay, I don't know, a couple of couple of pounds or something to, to get an old old radio, wheel it home on my bike, and through some sort of magic, I was able to tap a microphone into one of the valves of the chassis on the back of the, the radio set, and bingo, my, my voice would come out. And, I, and I'd, I'd put these poor neighbours through hell broadcasting my voice, pretending I was on radio, Paul, <laughs> for goodness sake. And little did they know what that would lead to. Now, at 16, you started your radio career at 3DB as a panel operator. Tell us about your time at DB, what they had you doing, and some of those great announcers of the day. Okay, well, um, I, I, I went from sort of, you know, being a kid in short pants uh, from a, a very conservative uh, up, upbringing in, in Melbourne to, to a, a radio station where there were uh, people with egos and what have you. Uh, and and I, I was in for one hell of a future shock when I got there. Some of the people working there in radio at the time were Don Kinsey, Lawrence Coston, Gordon Bell, Roland Redshaw, 
uh, Curtis Crawford, Jeff McComas, Brian Blacklock, Bill Collins, Ron Casey, uh, many of them household names at the time in Melbourne. The, the station was still very much in the kind of uh, 1940s, 1950s mould that radio had been in Melbourne. Uh, and it hadn't sort of progressed since, had, hadn't progressed much since when I was there, but uh, it emerged later on. But it was a, an amazing place to work at. And, and I, I was extremely honoured to be part of that, that DB of the time, Paul. Now, I dare say it's fair to say that the on-air style of DB in those days bore very little resemblance to how you would eventually present throughout your career. But what were some of the lessons learnt there that you were able to take with you when you moved on? Uh, I, I guess just being uh, alongside the announcer at the time, uh, who, whoever that may have been, um, just just watching them present the music smoothly. Um, I, I, I picked up uh, a fair bit of, of savvy from, from those announcers and it kind of taught me the fact that there, there was a, a real relationship between what you were saying and what you were playing. And I, I, I was able to kind of... Uh, uh, em- employs that in- into my later on radio technique, Paul. Now, David, the next move was an interesting one, a stint with Radio Australia. How did that come about and what lured you to work with Auntie? Well, uh, I had been at DB. I, uh, 3DB had actually want- wanted me to take on a, a kind of a, um, a marketing role. Um, myself and an- an- another turntable up there, a guy called Peter Stanton, and they... they- they got us both to do a course at RMIT, a marketing role at RMIT. I wasn't really interested in doing that at all. And so I departed DB and I, I, I was kind of, you know, pondering what, what I was going to do next. Uh, there, there was nothing in the offering. So I applied for a job at the ABC as a, pan, as a, as a, a music programmer. Didn't hear anything. I was about to start trying to find something else when I got a call from the ABC and I went before a panel down in the old Magella building in St Kilda Road, Melbourne, and lo and behold, I got the job. So I went in there as a music programmer, programming music for the ABC in Australia and some of it for Radio Australia. So it was just basically programming music, um, selecting uh, 45s, albums, what have you, for programs both here in Australia and Radio Australia. An amazing experience there um, with some wonderful people. I was only there a year and a half, two years or so, but it did teach me a lot about um, that sort of programming of music. Now, 3BA, I assume, is where you started to really cut your teeth in commercial radio. How did you find the good folk of Ballarat and how important was your time at that regional radio station? Well, I, I had I had been, uh, after the ABC, I, I, I lived overseas for a, a, a few years um, I, I tried to get some work in radio over there, but there was n- nothing going on. It, it was the time of the uh, pirate stations, but I, I wasn't equipped for that. So I came back and went, went to 3BA um, as, as breakfast announcer, actually, which I, I was kind of typecast as a breakfast announcer, I suppose. Um, great people in Ballarat, had a ter- terrific time there for a couple of years. The jocks there were, were all friendly, a great bunch of guys, um, I, I learned a lot about announcing there, uh, commercial jockeying as, as opposed to what I'd be doing at, at the ABC, programming, you know, music for uh, ABC jocks. So, yeah, it, it was the most beneficial time. And I went from there after a couple of years to 2NX in Newcastle.
indeed, from Ballarat to Newcastle and 2NX from 1971 to 1976. A very interesting time for that radio station as it was about to become part of one of the most influential stables of stations in Australia in the 70s and 80s. What was the station like prior to the 2SM influence and how much did it change? Um, prior to the 2SM takeover, it was an absolute disaster. It was owned by some local businessmen. I, I, I think a, a newspaper uh, north of Newcastle may have involved, and it was complete crap. It was a, a dreadful station. It was um, technically, it was completely uh, back in the 1940s. It was run down. It was worn out. Uh, we, we, we all got the, the word about six months in, in, into my tenure at 2NX, the 2SM had bought the radio station. About six weeks prior to the takeover, they installed new cart machines, they installed new microphones and what have you. And we all thought that, you know, this is it. We're, we've reached the end of our career at, at 2NX. We had to start looking around. Um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, it, it was a disaster, the old 2NX. Then came the, the takeover by 2SM. And we, we, we were told to be in the radio station uh, I think it was either uh, Boxing Day 1971 or New Year's Day 1972. It, 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 one of those two days, we're told to be in there, all the announcing staff, in the record library when uh, Rod Muir, Mike Webb and Garvin Rutherford, not necessarily in, in that order, would be in there to tell us what was happening with the new 2 and X. They, they came in, they... Uh, were just so incredibly powerful and so uh, outspoken about what was going to happen at 2NX. Mike Webb even made the statement, we've brought the new radio station up in the boot of the car. Um, anyhow, we, uh, we we all survived. My, my, my real name is David Watmuff. Uh, Rod Muir asked me my name and I told him and he said, okay, from now on you're David Jones. So from that minute in time, I was David Jones. Next morning... I was uh, on the air and, and Muir came in. He, he was there at 6 o'clock in the morning for the, the launch of a new station with the new music, the new jingles and what have you. Muir came in and said, uh, stop trying to be hip. Stop saying man, stop saying cool. So I dropped those attempted uh, or words where I was attempting to kind of, you know, uh, be cool and 2SM-ish. And, and I, he came in uh, another hour and he said, yeah, that's not sounding too bad. So probably uh, uh, a couple of months into, in, into my stay at 2NX, uh, under 2SM, he actually approached me to go and work at 2SM. And I said, no, I, I wasn't all that confident about my ability. Uh, plus, I had a, a family in Newcastle. And I didn't want to get thrown into the, the world of 2SM in Sydney. But, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing, amazing time going through that takeover of 2NX by 2SM, Paul. Now, NX became an incredible breeding ground for some of the really great jocks of that era. Who were some of the guys that you shared the roster with over your time there? Okay, uh, people like uh, Barry Chapman. Barry was uh, an announcer and program director. He was a terrific PD. Barry uh, just had a, a knack of uh, making anything possible. Uh, jocks Lee Simon, Peter Grace, Ian Grace, Mike Drayson, Hans Torv, so many, so many different guys went through that station. You know, it was incredible. And they, they, they all went on to bigger and better things from the breeding ground that 2NX was, an, an amazing situation. I, I mean, I, I was kind of incumbent at 2NX. I, I had been the brekkie jock 
I survived the takeover and I and I still felt, even though I was a two and X uh, doing breakfast as the incumbent, I still felt that, hey, th th these guys have been recruited by two and X. They, they, they were guys who wanted to work at two and X because of its reputation, because of its incredible uh, uh, pizzazz and what have you. I still felt that I was a little bit uh, lucky to have survived that takeover and lucky to be doing breakfast at 2NX with all this new talent there. So, yeah, some amazing people went through that radio station. Um, I, I, I must make special mention of Mike Webb, uh, who was the the PD, the first PD at 2NX, uh, a, a local uh, guy that he is now, and he... Uh, he pointed me in all the right directions, even though he had a, a funny way of doing it when he took over at 2 and Excess PD and he was doing mornings, night or midday. He had a, a, a just just this way of uh, showing me the, the, the way to go about uh, being on air and being a brekkie jock. So I've got enormous uh, respect for Mike Webb at 2 and X. Now, as well as being a significant on-air presence, you also did a lot of work in the local community. Now, was that done to increase your professional profile, or did you just like getting out and mixing with the people? A bit of both, Paul. Uh, I, I did around about 30 years of, um, of uh, community work in, in, in Newcastle. Um, uh, a, a lot of it was kind of uh, because of my, my uh, community profile. A lot of it was because I, I, I just said yes to one and the ball the ball started rolling and so i, I would say yes to, yes to one organization and plenty more would come in and ask me the same thing uh it was tough on my family i would go out i would wave them good night i had to come my, my son there waving at the window out i would go again and sometimes i was doing this is crazy sometimes i was doing up to three and four nights a week uh and getting up at some ungodly hour and going in to do breakfast because I had this uh, uh, this reputation for starting very early in the morning and putting a lot into my shift. So really, uh, 30 years of it, yes, it was beneficial to me in terms of my community profile. Uh, no, I don't think it was all that uh, worthy uh, in terms of achievement. I, I think had I, uh, with the value of hindsight, I'd look back now and I, I don't think I would have done it that way. It was, it was just too much, but, you know, it, it did uh, help out a lot of people in, in a situation they're in, I guess. More music, more music, 3XY. The first Capital City gig came in 1977 when you were appointed Program Director at 3XY in Melbourne, a station like 2SM and 4IP very much at the top of its game. So how did that appointment come about? And was it originally purely a managerial position or was there an on-air component as well? Okay, glad you asked me that. Um, John Torv uh, came to Newcastle um, with one thing in mind, that was to get me to 3XY as PD. No mention of going on air at all. He, uh, he was a very smooth guy, John Torv. I had enormous respect for him, that, that magnificent voice of his. He, he came to Newcastle. He... Uh, he set the deal up. He said, you know, I'm not going to, virtually I'm not going to take no for, for this, uh, this offer. And so I accepted. I, I, I had knocked back offers from, uh, from 2SM down the track. Um, so I said, this time I'm going to accept the offer. And uh, so with everything else in, involved in terms of moving the family to Melbourne again and what have you, and I said, yes, I'll take it. So I, I went to Melbourne. 
I had misgivings in terms of a, a guy from Newcastle going to a, a, a radio station as esteemed as 3XY was and some of the announcers there, like Greg Evans, John Scott, Peter Harrison, John O'Donnell, Peter Grace, Lee Simon, Joe Miller, Drayson, John Peters, uh, David Bookalil, Darren Hinch, Keith Williams in the morning, Hans Tour, Barry Bissell, uh, Bob Beck, the GM, um, Dick Hemmings, the station manager, promotions, John Scott, Prue Porter, music, Chris Maxwell, Stan Rofe. It was an enormous role. I, I can well recall Paul working in my, walking into my first jocks meeting. And I, John Torg had kind of instilled into me the fact that 3XY needed to change. Um, they weren't so sure about that at 3XY. So I, I walked into my first jocks meeting at XY, fifth, fifth floor at Spencer Street there, and, uh, and I said, look, um, we, we all know we're in a sinking ship. I actually said that to these guys. And Lee Simon, I can recall Lee saying, I'm not sure whether we're in a sinking ship. We're on a sinking ship uh, because Torv had instilled me the in, in me the fact that X Y needed to change, and I went in head head first, you know, and I I had to back my way out of that one a little bit. Uh, X Y was not a sinking ship at all. It was a very strong radio station. Just that I I mis uh, misunderstood Torvi's need to change X Y, which he did when he he uh, uh, programmed mornings into a sort of a you know a, a talk music thing with. Uh, Hinch and Williams and Torvi and Bissell and what have you. Yeah, it was an amazing experience coming to XY. I was very, very humbled. Uh, I lasted about about a year. I I, uh, I had, in, in the 1970s, I had four grand males, epileptic four uh, grand males, uh, one of which was at XY. Uh, uh, I fell over in my office and I went into it. I had this fit. Uh, Chris Maxwell at the time was nearby and rushed to me and tried to pull my tongue out of my, my mouth. He, um, he said he could have lost his fingers, which he well could have. Uh, by doing that, I was taken by ambulance to somewhere other in Melbourne. Uh, so that, that, that was the end of my PD role. I just was, uh, I guess, stressing out too much about it. So they flew me off to Fiji, typical uh, 2SM, Digame sort of uh, <laughs> tree, but they flew me off to uh, uh, Fiji for a couple of weeks, came back on freezing cold morning. I got the train into uh, into Melbourne. I'd been back in from Fiji for a couple of days. Uh, I was still in a tropical sort of uh, mode with my in terms of uh, feeling cold. Um, and they, they said, you, you're back on radio, you're back on breakfast. So we, we the following day we had a, um, a, a luncheon uh, head, headed up by Torv also with um, Darren and Keith Williams and what have you. And it was one of the most drunken lunches. I can, st I can still recall it. I, and and at, at that luncheon, which went from midday probably till nine that night, Torby said, okay, here's the news. You're starting tomorrow morning. <laughs> so we were, we were all of us terribly hungover. And I was on air the next morning at five o'clock, which you believe was my first breakfast shift at XY. And, Hinch was on the following morning as well, nine o'clock, but he was used to it. I wasn't. So an amazing stay at uh, XY and some great memories as a jock and as PD. 
Wow, two things out of that one there, David. Uh, the first one is quite unbelievable that someone would walk into a jocks meeting at 3XY in 1977 and say it's a sinking ship. The other one, that, which is quite believable, of course, is that Darren Hinch would be involved in a nine-hour lunch. Hey, listen, we all know how important the breakfast shift is, and those rating books reflected that the Melbourne radio audience liked your style, a style that included contributions from a fledging rock group at the time called Dave and the Darrows. Now, how did that association come about? Okay, well, what happened with that, Paul? Uh, I had worked in, when I was working in, in uh, breakfast radio in Newcastle at 2NX, I used to have characters, you know, for better or worse, little characters dropping in with bits and pieces. One of which I'd never use was an idea in my head for Dave and Vadero's. I just had it sitting there. I didn't ever use it at 2NX. I went to Melbourne and Nigel Haynes and myself were messing around one night uh, in production there. It, it was the death of Keith Moon, and we were knocking up a little backing track, or Nige was. I was fiddling around with it as well on the death of Keith Moon. We're going to do a little tribute track, and it didn't come out uh, in terms of the lyrics like we thought. So I thought, let's let's do something else. So we we used that backing track and came out backing track and came out with Death to Disco, which I had written up. So. The next day or a couple of days later, Lee Simon got hold of the of the tape we'd made on cartridge and he played it at drive time, on drive time. Uh, anyhow, long story, Michael Godinsky either had heard it or was told about it and said, shit, we're going to release that. So, <laughs> so anyhow, um, they released it. Uh, and it became, a, it became a, a minor, or when I say minor, probably a, a, you know, a top 10 hit in Melbourne, Death to Disco, and at the time... I said, okay, well, I'd, I'd like the proceeds of that song to go to uh, a charity, an Apex Children's Charity Fund in Melbourne for toys for underprivileged kids. Uh, and it got to, I, I think, probably in probably number five, number six in Melbourne, and it made a couple of grand for that particular charity. So I was wrapped that it did that and wrapped the fact that it got to number five or six in Melbourne. So Godinsky said that late Michael, the late great Michael Godinsky, said, we're going to have to come up with something different. Michael used to go to his office in Melbourne. He was down in St Kilda in those days, and he'd pace around the office. He'd be sitting there and he'd be pacing around like a, a caged tiger. And he was walking around saying, I have to come up with a, a, a follower. I have to come up with a follower. What's it going to be? Uh, anyhow, uh, Booker's, David Bookalil, who used to do a bit of work on breakfast with me, he and I went to, uh, to England, to Bath, for the teddy bears picnic, we did a live OB back to, uh, uh, not a live OB, some crosses back to XY. And uh, he he and I heard Nice Leg Shame About the Face being done in, uh, or being played on uh, British radio uh, by a band called The Monks. So we said, we're going to do that when we get back to Australia, and we did. We recorded that down at AAV, Nigel and myself, Nigel Haynes, myself and what have you, uh, and it became a fairly substantial hit around the country. So, yeah, and it, it, it meant Nigel and myself did some gigs around Melbourne as Dave and the Zeros um, with a, a, a really good bunch of musos. I mean, I, I was a pretty uh, pretty ordinary lead singer. I used to sort of pump it out somehow. Uh, and, yeah, we, we had gigs. We, we did the... Uh, the Capitol Theatre in Sydney, a mushroom gig up there. We did the uh, the Australia Day uh, Mushroom Evolution concert in Melbourne over the 
uh, Australia Day weekend, I think it was 1981, 82, uh, Michael Gorinsky said, uh, get out there and, and do three songs. That's it. No three, no, no more than three songs. We got out there and we'd done about five. And Michael Gorinsky's at the side saying, get off, get off. We kept playing until they physically dragged us off the stage at the Maya Music Bowl. It was a, a whole lot of fun. And to this day, uh, there is a substantial amount of interest in Dave and the Dara. Strangely enough, as it may seem, that song pops up occasionally. And somebody has some trivia somewhere about Dave and Daderos. Thanks to Nigel Haynes and I guess myself and the guys in the band. It was a great story, a, a whole lot of fun. Nice legs, shame about your face. Nice legs, shame about your face. Now, after conquering Melbourne, it was back to Newcastle and to an X for a six year stint that saw your work recognised with two Australian Radio Best Personality Awards in 1981 and 1982. So, how proud are you of those two awards? And would you say that this is the period where DJ was at the top of his game? Yes, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Paul. I, I was very chuffed about that. Uh, both in Sydney, they were. I, I got to one of them, the other one was uh, brought home to me. Uh, extremely proud of that. Um, I chopped those uh, little uh, entries up myself. Uh, I, uh, I think some of the other guys had them done by the production team, but I, I felt very close to the work that I'd done and I uh, chopped them up myself at the production or the multi-track desk and uh, I was extremely, extremely chuffed about them. Uh, funny enough, I've got, I've got one of them. The other one I lost. A bit of flux in my life at the time and... Uh, uh, sadly, I've only got one. Uh, the 82 one was lost somewhere. But, uh, yes, incredibly impressed and at the top of my tree, uh, I, I think mainly because of my experience at uh, 3XY, which was my crowning glory. I still uh, maintain that XY was uh, uh, at the peak of the uh, top of my tree. But definitely uh, it uh, channeled my work into the six years at uh, NX. Yeah, And I got into uh, all sorts of... Uh, prank calls and what have you on the air, some of which went on too long and which were too boring. But the trouble is I used, I used to do these prank calls and I'd have people um, uh, lined up when I got off here on the phone wanting me to ring up uh, some friend of theirs and play a, play a prank on them. And I, I'd be there till 10 o'clock taking all these people uh, people's information down, wanting me to ring them or a friend up to set them up the following morning. It became too much. <laughs> Now, interestingly, you head back to Melbourne to 3UZ to be part of their stereo AM offering with some fairly heavy hitters in Leon Biner, John O'Donnell, Micah Hearn and Kevin John. No shortage of on-air talent there, but it just didn't seem to resonate with the audience. Was it the format that was presented or was FM radio now starting to take over? Uh, a bit of both, I think, Paul. I think uh, it, it, didn't, um, it didn't resonate with the audience they had. Um, and I, I and F, FM most definitely taking over. But I think 3UZ was, um, it had been such a magnificent radio station, as we all know in the 60s, what have you. It just didn't, uh, it just didn't uh, translate into the 80s. Uh, it was a, a sad reflection of what it had been. But as you said, some, some seriously heavy hitters there, 3UZ. 
um, yeah, some some wonderful talent. Um, yeah, I, I I was actually um, uh, offered that job. I was holidaying up in um, a place called uh, Foster Tun Curry with my parents. Uh, Mum and Dad were up from Melbourne, and uh, I had a call. No mobiles in those days, of course, but I had a somehow a, a message got to me up there that uh, uh, that I had a uh, an offer of a job at Three UZ, and because I had a, a again all sorts of personal dramas happening with me at Two and X. I accepted the job up there, just just like that, bang, and I went back to NX and resigned and was down at UZ with um, Mike Ahern. Mike was doing breakfast on KO. I was doing breakfast on NX, and we both went down to UZ, uh, he doing drive, and I was doing uh, – he, he passed away a number of years back, but I was doing breakfast. So, yeah, a real shame. Uh, you know, people like John O'Donnell, they, they don't – come uh, your way every day. Great talent, John. Had a wonderful uh, feel for music, a great jock on the air. Just at UZ, it just didn't translate into the 80s from where it had been in the 60s and 70s. Now you wander up the dial in Melbourne to 3KZ for a short stint, then back to Newcastle and 2HD before settling in for breakfast at 2KO for what was another professionally successful appointment, but one that took its toll health-wise. Yes, it did. Um, KO, uh, I, I had a, a long, long stint of KO. Uh, I was there from 1980 or 1987, I think it was. Not in, no, no, sorry, 1989, right through till 2002. But I, I did have a lot of problems with my health in, in those days. Uh, and once again, I, I was kind of uh, putting too much into my program there. Uh, I, I was keeping those bizarre hours I mentioned to you earlier. I was getting in there. God knows what, uh, sometimes in, in there at midnight or one o'clock in the morning and preparing uh, preparing a show that was going to wear some seven or eight hours later. It was crazy, crazy stuff. Um, yeah, crazy, completely crazy stuff. And it, it just didn't just didn't work, even though I had fairly good ratings. Um, uh, in terms of my health, uh, uh, I, I went on to have open heart surgery in 2015. That is in my post-radio days. Uh, it, that They entered in 2002, but I went on to have major open heart surgery in 2015, a lot of which came about because of uh, that stint at KOFM in Newcastle in those days. I survived the uh, open heart surgery okay, um, ended up with a pacemaker and what have you, and... Um, yeah, I'm still here to talk about it as I'm talking to you about <laughs> Yes, and that's definitely a good sign. Hey, listen, the list of uh, KO alumni, like so many other stations, reads as a who's who of Australian radio legends. Names like Alan Lappin, Gary Meadows, Peter O'Callaghan, Peter Meehan, Tim Webster, Mike Jeffrey, Sel Jones, and the list goes on. Many had come and gone by the time you had arrived, but who were some of the names that you worked with during that time? Okay, KO, I'm trying to think back. Uh, Stuart Horn, would that name ring a bell with you at all, Paul? Mm-hmm. Stuart Horn, um, gee, uh, Mel Headstrom. Mel was a, a 2SM jock. Mel passed away a couple of years back. He became a, a very close friend. So he and I had some uh, a lot of laughs in those days at KO. Um, Andy Simpson, who had been at uh, 2NX, uh, 2SM, uh, uh, and uh, Triple M in Newcastle, but he was at KO. Fiona Cameron, she was a jock who was at KO. That's, that's about it, really. 
Triple G FM on the Gold Coast and back to KO until 2002. Well over 40 years in a pretty demanding occupation. Plenty of successes there, David. Any regrets? No, not really. Um, I, I, I perhaps do regret never having taken up the 2SM offer, the, the two-time offer from Rod Muir to go and work in Sydney. I mean, if, if Rod saw something in me, uh, I, th- there must have been something there. And the fact that I didn't take up the offer uh, and at least give it a give, give it a chance uh, was a, a bit to my detriment, really, because he, he was such a, an amazing man, full of incredible talent. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I, I guess that, that, that is probably my one regret, Paul. Now, can we just rewind back to the Darrows for a moment? We are all familiar with Nice Legs and Death to Disco, but there's also this little gem. It was very late last Saturday night. I was walking along just itching for a fight. I comes across this well-known pub and I moves inside for a bit of that shop and grub. And there I seen her with me foster's eyes, a razor through her nose and tattoos on her thigh. She's my Yes, indeed, Punk Princess, with writing credits going to D. Jones and N. Haynes, with the more fascinating acknowledgement going to the executive producer, one Lee Simon. Now, I'm sure that's one credit that Lee would feature very high on his list of career highlights. Oh, I'm sure it would. <laughs> I'm sure that would be right up there on Lee's list of highlights in his career, yeah. Fancy that I didn't know Lee's name was on there. Finally, Dave, what can you tell us about your experiences with Mac One Jet Fighters? Yeah, well, I did a, a live OB in a Mac One Jet Fighter out of Williamtown in 1980. Uh, it had been set up the day before. I had to go up there for a, a, a training flight. Uh, the, the, the pilot in question was Flight Lieutenant Laurie Evans. And he took me on a, a, a training flight the day before out of Williamtown Air Base near to Newcastle. Um, he, uh, he said, I'm going to stop the, uh, the plane on your roof. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, where do you live? I said, New Lambton Heights, which is the suburb of Newcastle I lived in at the time. And so he, he went flying down, down uh, Grandview Road, which is the road I lived in. And he did that. He virtually stopped the plane on my roof and put it into a a, a, a streaming climb and my face went completely contorted. It was unbelievable. The, the next morning, the, the OB went between seven and eight and uh, all these people were, were, were calling up the, uh, the uh, RAF base at Williamtown. Are we being invaded? <laughs> what a waste of fuel. But a lot of people also were, were contacting me via Mirror. Andy Simpson at, at the time, uh, an NX jock, was on the phone to me and I actually sang, I sang Nice Leg Shame About the Face in the plane to a backing track. I, I've got it on, on tape somewhere. It's about all I do have left on tape of my career. So that was an amazing day, flying up there in a, in a Mac one fighter jet with uh, Flight Lieutenant Laurie Evans. Never, ever forget that, no matter how hard I try. Okay, David, now time to fire a quick dozen or so questions at you. First one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I was at Boomerang Beach, which is north of Newcastle. Once again, uh, Andy Simpson was the jock on 2NX. I heard him 
break that news about four o'clock in the afternoon, and I was shell shocked, absolutely shell shocked. Couldn't believe it. That last concert ticket you paid for? Well, uh, last concert, uh, I, I don't really believe in paying for concert tickets. No, really, Fleetwood Mac, Hope Estate near Newcastle, 2015, in the rain. But it was worth every every second of it. The concert act that you regret never seeing? Uh, either the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, Paul, most definitely. Probably leaning towards the Beatles, even though they didn't do that much live appearances. But, yeah, definitely the Beatles. Okay, David, was there a word you had most trouble pronouncing on air? Synthesis. I won't <laughs> attempt it because I have trouble pronouncing it. <laughs> all of them, actually, not, not just synthesis, all of them. Was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Yeah, well, uh, one, I, I don't know whether I would have had Don't Come Monday orders, but when I was at UZ, I, I, I used to call up, even at 3UZ, it persisted where I'd, I'd ring up people and, and, and do things. I, I rang up uh, Ron Barassi at uh, Melbourne Training at the MCG one night as Bob Hawke. I did the phone call in the, late in the afternoon to replay the next morning. So I called Ron Barassi as Bob, you know, Bob Hawke, you know, and uh, Ron Barassi actually answered, yes, Prime Minister, and I had no idea where to go from there. He could have said, oh, yeah, but he said, yes, Prime Minister. I thought, my God, what am I going to do here? What am I going to do? So I had to sort of bail out of it somehow as a bad connection or whatever. And I remember ringing him back the next day and saying, Mr Barassi, my name is David Jones. I was calling you up as a stunt as Bob Hook, is it okay if I play the interview up to that point in time? He said, yeah, it's not a problem. He was very pleasant about it, actually. But, you know, just the fact that he called me, yes, Prime Minister, he, he was fooled and defeating that I was Bob Hook, that I was Bob Hook. Skyhooks or Sherbert? Um, Skyhooks just because they were so, such an innovative rock and roll band. Sherbert were also, but Skyhooks to me uh, just, just a, a fraction uh, in front of uh, Sherbert. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? The Beatles, once they're poor, for sure. Beatles, yeah. David, the most treasured piece of memorabilia from those early radio days? Yeah, well, uh, I'd hark back to your earlier question. The two plaques in 81 and 82 when I was awarded the best uh, on-air personality, Australian Radio Awards in Sydney, even though I've lost one of them. Yeah, most definitely. Very much so. The biggest news story that broke while you were on-air? I've got three of them here. The Cuban Missile Crisis back in the early 60s. I can recall being on um, on Flinders Street Railway Station. I'd finished a shift as a turntable operator at uh, DB and I was getting a train home down to Moorabbin and it was being broadcast over the platforms, uh, some service or other, I don't know. So that was that. Was that. Port Arthur uh, and 9-11, most definitely. Those, those three would have been the biggest three in, in my career, I guess. David, the moment someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck. Well, it wasn't actually in the studio, but I, uh, I, I was in, in the back of a theatre in Newcastle uh, with an old uh, roller tape recorder, for goodness sake, back in the early 70s, and Spike Milligan walked in. Um, I, I'd always wanted to meet or talk with Spike Milligan. He walked in. I, it was a set-up interview. He was appearing at the Civic Theatre uh, in the city that night he walked in with four Chico rolls, four Chico rolls. I have no idea why, but he was eating a, a, a bit out of each one. So I sat down with him and had a, a long chat about his career and about um, uh, con con conservation, which he was heavily into. But I got back to the radio station and I lost the whole interview. 
uh, in interference of some sort at the Civic Theatre had caused it to go wrong. So I wasn't able to play any of it. Disaster. But yeah, definitely um, starstruck on meeting Spike Milligan. The best words of advice from a program manager? Yeah, um, Barry Chapman once told me, be yourself no matter what. So I would thank Barry Chapman for that. I always, I always did endeavour to be myself no matter what. Finally, David, two albums you'd consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years. Yep. Um, I would say uh, Thick as a Brick, Jethro Tull, and Tubular Bells, Mike Oldfield. I, I point those two out because uh, that, they were wonderful albums which we played heavily back in back in the day uh, and which don't get a look in these days. But I, I really believe those albums could uh, have permanent places in album cuts these days if they were afforded the, the time and space. Speaking of time, David, ours has gone so quickly. Hey, listen, thanks so much for the time today. Great stories, great reminiscing and a great career. Very fondly remembered in Melbourne and absolutely loved in Newcastle. Keep healthy and uh, thanks again. Thanks, Paul. As I say about radio, one day you're working in it, the next day you can't afford the batteries for your transistor. David Jones on Pilots of the Airwaves. Pilots of the Airwaves.